Hello everyone. Today's podcast is going to be called Local and Labels. But before I jump into that, I got two things I want to address real quickly. First is something I said in the last podcast, and it was about the partial trimmings done, and I had thought that was for animal welfare. And my wife, Sarah, remembers much more correctly what was going on there. Uh, And this guy had come up with some sort of deal specifically with Whole Foods, and he was had gotten this partial trimming, and it had gotten okay for birds that were selling eggs at Whole Foods. So that was not an animal welfare certified thing, and I just wanted to get the record straight there. And the second thing that I would like to address, um, I got talking about and thinking about where this podcast was going. And um, one thing was, you know, I would like to eventually get to the point where I'm interviewing people and getting some other voices on here. And then as the discussion went about um, getting more voices on here, I was talking about how I don't have any real feedback loops for these podcasts. I don't have many people asking questions or having any discussions on that. And uh, in talking to younger people and people who are uh, much more savvy about uh, social media media and digital stuff, um, the question came up, well, is it obvious how to get in contact with you? And it's not real obvious. And so I wanted to rectify that. And first and foremost, uh, we do have a website uh, for our farm, for the business side of things, and that's uh, weathertopfarm.com. And there's an email that goes along with that, and that's info at weathertopfarm.com. And uh, we check our emails daily, several times a day, and I would respond to anything on there. And the other thing that I have not made clear at all but I have a Instagram. I have started an Instagram account, which is my first real foray into social media. So bear with me. But my handle is Farmer Sledge. So F A R M E R S L E D G E, and it's just basically sort of a picture companion to stuff I talk about on this podcast. So if you care to, you can follow me on that. And I may or may not uh, have the (laughs) savvy to follow you back, but uh, there's that option. Just want to take care of those two things, and why don't we go ahead and jump in. So, local and labels. The last podcast was also talking uh, about one of the issues or one of the nodes on the web of sustainability, and that was the animal welfare. And it was from the perspective of the farmer and kind of from someone who's trying to figure out what the emphasis of their operation is and how you can fall into the pitfall of emphasizing one issue at the detriment of the others. And um, that I see that happening fairly often with animal welfare issues. On the other side of like the customer perspective, I think some of the same sort of um, narrow focused and sort of in a box thinking where you sort of emphasize one thing to the detriment and isolation, you know, of the other issues. And, and that happens with labels. And specifically, um, I find this happening most often with the issue of GMOs and non-GMOs. In some of my earlier podcasts, I touched on the issue of, of GMOs, and that was in the context of ecology and talking about glyphosate, um, respective, you know, relative to many of the herbicides, or most herbicides out there, is, is actually rather benign. And it's actually the paradigm that it makes it 
you know, used so prolifically, and which is actually the real problem. And the fact that these GMOs have also mitigated a lot of tillage. You know, our, our arguments that uh, the ecology argument is a little more nuanced, a little more gray. But this, this does not mean that I have any love for GMOs. And that's because my perspective is a little different. Here in America, much of the conversation is exactly around that, the ecological issues, the ecological damage of, of glyphosate, or even, you know, nutritional. Are these GMOs creating free radicals in our bodies and whatnot? And there is no definitive research that has really proven that. And I see this as a red herring. I see this as a side argument that's sort of taking the attention away to the much more nefarious issues. So for me, having grown up overseas, I'm much more in tune or aware, or it bothers me a lot more, the fact that these multinational companies, they go over to a poor country where they see it as, you know, this is fresh fresh ground, fresh market for more customers to buy their products. And they'll go in there with some slick salesman and talk up about their seed and the yield. And, you know, maybe they'll even, you know, give some seed to one guy and this guy will grow some. And, you know, the yield will outperform the native species there but expensive very expensive to buy these seeds but you know maybe these guys are looking at say well if i could get that yield and they try to do the math and they think well maybe i could make a little bit more money right these guys are eking out their existence and so they'll go into debt and buy these seeds and then of course the reality is never quite as good as promised especially you know africa is my point of reference that's tropical you're going to have all kinds of diseases you're going to have pests that these seeds were developed here maybe they were developed here in the midwest and maybe they have you know for years and years been very prolific and have worked out well almost 99 times out of 100 they don't work long term over there so you know maybe you even got a really good yield the first year and then that convinced even more people to buy the seeds but before you know it they're going to fall prey to some disease some pest Normally, if you're gathering your own seed and you're developing these things, you're sort of tapping into that evolution. The farmer sort of, you know, has seed that, that works well in their environment, becomes resistant to the, you know, pests and diseases that are there. That's not going to happen with a, a factory-made seed that's being made in a completely different country. But it gets much more nefarious in that this is all under the intellectual property. You know, where it used to not be constitutional to patent life and patent these biological resources. You know, they were the seed companies were able to change that, and now they can try to own seed. You know, now that's moved on to, you know, everyone's trying to get patent on, on genes and whatnot, and that's uh, quite a rabbit hole there. But this was not uh, acceptable in other countries um, until they had been, you know, countries have changed to have these sort of intellectual property rights for these biological things. But that has come from a lot of economic and political pressure from developed countries. And so, of course, they understand uh, intellectual property when it comes to, you know, an invention, right? We all learned in school about the cotton gin. We all learned, you know, the, the electric bulb. Everyone kind of gets that intuitionally that... You know, you have spent time and energy and intelligence to come up with this invention, and it makes sense that you get some sort of monetary reward from that, and you get recognized for that. But it goes against, it's counterintuitional to do that for for living things, seeds, or Bolivia, or, you know, the South American countries where the privatization of water, where it wasn't even, like, 
legal to save rainwater. I mean, the stories get crazy. And there are some valiant people out there fighting this kind of stuff. I think of like Vandiva Shiva in, um, in India, you know, fighting against whether it's GMO or private countries trying to have a patent on the neem tree. I mean, these schemes get extraordinarily nefarious. And it's all centered around intellectual property. And this was a huge issue for me during the Iraq War. It really came to head and, and sort of brought it into light to, that this is, is orchestrated on a level that I hadn't realized before. So when we, you know, regardless of what you think of the Iraq War, regardless of your stance on preemptive strike and whether it was a justified war or not, the, the reality is we went in there and we bombed the seed bank. The U.S. actually has a reputation for doing this. We've done that in Iraq. We've done that in um, Afghanistan in Syria. And we went and bombed in Iraq, I, uh, you know, sort of ironically, that's uh, where we built Abu Ghraib. This is the cradle of civilization um, where, you know, sort of agriculture really first evolved. So they've been saving seeds there for thousands of years. And a seed bank's not just like a museum. This is incredibly valuable diversity. And so like if you have a failed state and then you want to get the agriculture going again and you want to get seeds that have, have co-evolved there to, for that environment and for that locality, the, you know, these seed banks are essential. But we go there, we bomb the seed bank, and then when Paul Bremer was there and he sort of Orwellianly had these hundred orders of of transition of sovereignty, it came really to light that these multinational companies were in bed with this sort of operation in that there was, I believe, Order 81. And that was a, a clause in there. This was an order that had to be followed that established intellectual property and particularly for plants and new varieties of plants. So basically any sort of farmer in Iraq, if they were getting any of these new seeds, it was basically paving a way for these these big companies to come in there and sell their seeds and be guaranteed that it would be illegal for these farmers to save those seeds. And it's a little bit harder to understand as Americans how how deeply offensive that is because, you know, our scale of agriculture here has for a while been at large enough that for the division of labor, it made more sense for farmers to always be buying seeds. You know, they focus on, on being the growers, you know, they buy all the seed, they grow the grain and they leave the saving of the seed to a seed company. And this division of labor makes sense at the scale that we're talking about with the kind of agriculture we have here. But in these countries that are much more poor, that, that's not the scale we normally are talking about. These people are saving seeds because that's how they survive. That's how they're ensuring that they're going to have enough food the next year, you know, or the next season. You know, they have to get through the a winter or they have to get through a dry season and save enough seeds so they can start the whole process over again. And so it gets extremely nefarious. It's hard to really imagine any sort of other, other um, motivation for these multinational companies than they're trying to create dependency. And if I made anything clear with my podcast, where I was dealing with aid in Africa is that fostering dependency I find I find very offensive. 
rather than supporting a local economy and trying to support sovereignty or however you want to put it, uh, self-sustaining economies, um, this is the antithesis to that. And I find that actually moral, morally reprehensible on a level deeper than how it's affecting my nutrition or, you know, in the more gray areas that we typically talk about. I got a little bit into the weeds there, but all that was to say that I don't have a love for the GMO. For many years here at the farm, this was a big issue for us. And it came down to the fact that we were using feed that was, um, it wasn't specifically non-GMO, which guarantees that you got plenty of GMO in your feed because it, in, when you're dealing with corn or soya and even some of the wheat, the vast, vast, vast majority of that is now GMO unless otherwise specified. And so we lost a lot of customers because of this. And we revisited this. Every year we would revisit this issue because, like I said, we, I have no love for GMO. But it just didn't make sense logistically. For the longest time, the closest supplier for non-GMO feed for us was two and a half, maybe three hours away. And the logistics of that was just with the kind of uh, the amount that we were getting... We'd have to be getting deliveries. And so the, I should explain that with, with feed, once you mill a grain, it begins losing nutritional value very quickly. And if you remember right, we're dealing with some birds, particularly the broilers. They're very fragile. And if you start losing nutrition, they start not doing very well very quickly. And it also is true that that nutrition gets passed on to the customer. So you have a product that, that's just it's not doing as well. It doesn't grow as well. And it's probably not as nutritionally valuable so to keep our we're talking you know we don't we really really do not want our feed to be around for more than a month especially in the hotter in the hotter months right it's not quite as an issue in the colder months so this means that we would be having to get feed fairly often um, it's not like we could just order you know 10 tons and then be using it for a couple months when the height of our season, we need quite a bit of feed. And so whether it was deliveries, which would mean you have to get a significant amount for them to deliver it, and then we'd be holding it and it would be losing nutritional, nutritional value, or the other option would be for us to be driving and picking it up ourselves, like twice a week or something. And when you're talking about driving your pickup and going to get maybe a ton and a half twice a week, that's not just a time commitment. Suddenly you're talking about gas, suddenly you're talking about carbon footprint and for me and this is bringing it full circle for me it's not local so despite all my misgivings about gmo in contrast to that sort of scenario where we were spending all this time and gas and you know getting it from someplace three hours away there's a local mill here and they've been around for generations. You know, it's a family-owned business. And these guys are not really concerned about the environment. But they know their business of animal feed. They know their business of grain. And, and they're buying up. They get as much as they can um, in a local. You know, in local for them, I think, was 75 to 100-mile radius. When I talked to them, I was asking them these questions. They were able to source about 50% of the corn. You know, in this area, we can't grow a lot of, you know, we can't grow grain like the Midwest can. 
but the corn is something that can be grown decently well here. So they were getting about 50% of their corn sourced locally and about 10% of their wheat, you know, and then the other numbers were we're getting pretty small, but that's really very significant for the amount of volume that they're getting. They're supporting a lot of farms in the area. And so in the web of issues of sustainability, local is, is key, right? The story of rural America is that it's just been slowly dwindling. And this is this parallels exactly with the aid in a poor country in Africa, right? You flood the market with something, and so all the little local economies are just, they die out. Same thing when uh, we talked about inputs and in soil, right? You flood it with these synthetic fertilizers that are like really super bioavailable. That means the, you know, the fungi is, is not going to create relationships with the roots. The bacteria are going to, you know, all these little systems that these small little economies are going to die off. The same thing has happened historically here in rural areas. So if we're looking to build resilient, robust economies in the soil, that, that's sort of reflected, you know, practically up into, you know, social, right? And so here we are, we have a chance to be supporting a mill that is buying up a ton, you know, supporting a ton of farms in the area. That's all part of our understanding of why it's important to be local, right? Because agriculture, it's not just the farmer. There's all these other, this other infrastructure that's got to interrelate. We've got the seed companies growing the seed. We've got the mills buying from the farms, the grain growers, you know, milling for the feed. We've got the abattoirs and the butchers that are taking the animals. We've got the farmers markets that are helping you. Sell. All this infrastructure, all these little things, they're working together. These are those little local economies that we're talking about. And so for us, you know, making our decision there was we were driving three hours away, you know, and three hours back and we're, we're doing all that and we would have to do that because we want non-GMO feed versus being able to support stuff that's already going around here. And that was a tough choice for us. But in, in the end, the ecological impact of driving and all that and the fact that we were supporting local infrastructure and keeping that alive and helping that whole thing, that tipped the balance for us. And mind you, remember that non-GMO feed is significantly more expensive to buy, and, and that's the cost that we'd have to pass on to our customers. And in the end, feeling like we haven't really provided them with anything better, and maybe not even as good, we weren't willing to pass on that cost just for the sake of getting that label. But in the end, I have a great story to tell in that there was this guy, he's um, from uh, about half hour away from us, and he was he was one of the growers that was actually selling to the mill here. But he's got a business of non-GMO uh, seed. His, his primary business is to grow seed and sell it as seed. But industrious, and this guy uh, was growing grain also to sell for animals, and he got himself a, a machine that can hook up to the PTO of his tractor. And he's able to provide, he's not very big, but a scale big enough for us, and right in the next door county here. And so he's growing all non-GMO grain, but it's 
the, the even more significant it's all right there. It's it's him, his family. He can also source from his neighbors in the area. They're more in the valley, so they can grow grow the stuff um, much better than up here, where we're in the rolling hills of the mountains. And so, we were able to. We've we've made that transition. It took us about a year to slowly make that transition, but tweak the recipes a little bit, and we've got our animals performing well on it. And uh, suddenly, you know, now, you know, we're paying maybe twenty five percent more for our feed than we were but I, I can look a customer in the eye and say yeah we're not GMO but we're doing it and I'm gonna pass this extra cost on to you um, it might be 50 cents more per pound but I can tell you that we have made leaps and bounds in terms of it was a carbon footprint I'm sure has been cut by a factor of maybe 10 I don't know you know just you know this is not coming from the Midwest this is coming from next door and sort of idealistically, um, perhaps even naively, you know, I, li I like to think that the fact that we held out and we were not getting our, you know, sourcing our non-GMO feed, you know, three hours away, that that helped um, be able to provide a demand for even more local. This is all part of being the antithesis of the vast, huge, you know, corporations. There's such mass scale that they can flood the market. And if you're just looking at monetary, yeah, we probably could just buy that cheaper stuff. But if I can tell my story and we can talk about local and we can, customers can start to understand the value of, of supporting these infrastructures, right? Then suddenly that has these implications socially, right? The sad story of rural America, of a depressed economy, that translates into, you know, like psychological depression, right? We're, we're in an area that drug use is a serious problem, right? Meth, we have a, an entire drug court because our judicial systems, you know, in this county, small county, 15,000 people, and our judicial system was overloaded with too many drug cases. They couldn't deal with the more you know, serious crimes are oh, not not necessarily more serious, but other crimes, you know, that were just as serious. So they have a drug court, you know, in order to, so that's just an implication of, of how serious things have been, right? right? So if we can provide jobs around here, there's a lot of people around here who would love to work hard, who would love to work with the land, land maybe they have been with their family for generations. And if they can find meaningful work that actually will pay them enough <laughs> so that they can, you know, sustain themselves and even be able to send a kid to college or something, then suddenly we are creating a, a you know, resilient system enough that can be an alternative to the big food. Because if we don't have systems in place, you know, it's not just the individual farm. We have to have systems in place local and yet, you know, resilient and robust and flexible enough that that can begin to be a true alternative to, you know, the mass marketed huge agricultural food, right? If we're ever going to be a true alternative that can provide, you know, and that we're not just this sort of niche, like 2% of the, the market of food out there, you know, if we're ever going to be a real movement, something that's going to change, not just the local, it'll change local, but it'll start affecting worldwide, you know, this is just, it spreads out sort of a grassroots movement, all these things, you know, that are, are answers to carbon sequestering, are answers to nutritional and, and medical problems, all these things, but they have to have a basis and a very strong, resilient network of infrastructure for, for food, you know, for the farmer, for the you know, value adding, for the selling, you know.
know, and then suddenly, you know, we have economies maybe that are not producing young kids so disillusioned with the world that, you know, or even bored or whatever is leading them to try the meth thing, you know, when they don't really see ways out, suddenly we can provide an answer to some of these social issues. So to the customer, you know, I would like to say, you know, I understand labels. Labels are kind of like a necessary evil. We have to start somewhere. We need to know a tiny bit about our food. But gotta be so careful. Non-GMO can really mean anything. And I have a lot of people that will say, well, I don't want to support Monsanto. You know, I don't want to support these big seed companies because they have the GMO. But there's no guarantee. Unless you know for sure, you have no guarantee that th these seed companies, they own non-GMO seeds too. Or, you know, whether it's Cargill or Bayer or whatever, they all have subsidiary companies as well, you know, that might have a non-GMO non seed. But labels can help you a little way, but they are absolutely no substitute for knowing your farmer, for actually going out to the farm to go see what, what's going on on this farm. Are they, well, one, are they living what they preach? Because, you know, we're human beings. Some of us are not as honest as we should be. But then you can go see, you know, are, are, are the feedback loops intact? Are the animals thriving? Are they, you know, all this stuff. Are they really getting grass? Are they being rotated? And the more knowledgeable you are, the more you can actually make decisions, you know, and, and going out and seeing that. Labels can be very, very deceptive. And companies know very well how to manipulate. They're very good at manipulating labels. We've seen that very much with, like, chickens and eggs. We used to call hens that were out in the field, we called them free range. Well, sure enough, now you have a label that says free range. What does that mean? That means they have access to outside, and that access could be a concrete, you know, pad. You know, it means nothing anymore, right? So, no substitute for actually knowing your farmer and, and actually visiting their farm. And if I could just get on the radar of customers that that local issue isn't just freshness, it isn't just just kind of a cool, cool connection, but actually there's some serious social ramifications about rebuilding systems, systems that can support people, support families, and support farmers that can actually be an alternative to, um, to a lot of the messed up systems out there. Well, I appreciate you listening. I think that's it for now. We'll catch you later. Bye.